Welcome, Tay. Well, as you can hear, I'm sick. <laughs> so, pray that I make it through the sermon. Because we're doing the whole thing regardless. So pray for the grace of God to get me through. Our scripture reading as we work our way through the first part of the book of Acts, the start of the church. Today we're in chapter two. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so hang with me. This details the very first gospel sermon ever preached. The word of God to us this morning is this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Just as a side note, social media commentary is nothing new. There's always going to be the detractors, isn't there? Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain, explain to you, listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Peter never met some of my extended relatives, I guess. They're, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. 
but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. And Father God, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to come into the minds and the hearts of each of us who are gathered here in these moments, in this place, those who are with us online, those who will be watching at a later date as well. Lord, for you know all things, and all things are under your sovereign hand. Lord, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring the truth of your word, the power of your Spirit to bear on our lives. Lord, I pray for those of us who are desperately seeking for truth, that we will be assured of the truth of your love, your goodness, your faithfulness, your victory over death and the life you assure us of. Lord, for those of us struggling with just distraction or discouragement because of the things in this world, Lord, I pray for those to be pushed to the side. I pray for our hearts and our minds to be aligned on you, your truth, your word, and that will become our path forward. Lord, for those of us struggling with doubt or with other things, Lord, I pray for confidence and assurance. Lord, for those of us who have already faced great grief in this new year. I ask for a special measure of your spirit to bring comfort to hearts that hurt. As always, Father God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word. I ask today also for the weakness of my voice to not be a distraction from you, your truth, your glory, power of your son Jesus, but I pray that our hearts will hear what we need to hear from you this day through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O oh Father God, that we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
And a very special welcome to those joining with us online today. We're so glad that you're a part of the Oak Park family. Thanks for being here and uh, for just being a part of the family. Remember, you can text in praises or prayer requests, comments, questions to 805-481-7092. We would love to hear from you. If you have not contacted us before via text, please make sure you include your name with the number so we can uh, be praying for you by name and then contact you to see how we can help you grow spiritually because we would love to do that. Welcome, welcome aboard. Well, we see in this passage, the wait is finally over. And boy, was the wait ever worth it. As Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, over the next 40 days, he appeared to his disciples at various times and in various places. He taught them more about the kingdom of God and about the mission that lay before them. These appearances would come and go, but those appearances would come to an end. And Jesus, in his final communication, told his disciples, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And with that, Jesus was ascended from the earth into the heavenly realms, and he is seated at the right hand of God. In those moments after that, the disciples were so distracted that they're just looking up in the sky. And finally, two men who who are angels said to them, why are you guys standing here looking up at the sky? Do what Jesus told you to do. Get back to Jerusalem and wait. And by the way, this same Jesus will return in the way that he left. So the disciples meander back to Jerusalem. It's a very short journey, only about six-tenths of a mile. They go and they go back to the room where they've been kind of holed up and they've been kind of the epicenter of where their, their body life has been, where they've commiserated together and where they've tried to process all these things Jesus has done. And then they wait. And the first day passes. The second day comes and they're like, maybe this is the day. But Jesus said to Wait. Waiting is never fun, is it? You remember being a kid? The longest week of the year was the week after you get out of school and then before Christmas. At least that's the way it was done in the old days. And those days dragged on and on and on. As an adult, Christmas is here and gone before you even know it. But when you're a kid, the waiting is super hard. But it's also hard for us adults to wait too, isn't it? We get very impatient. Sometimes God's message to us is just wait. So the disciples waited. Ten stinking days they had to wait. Now they were busy. They were meeting together. They were praying together. They were praying fervently. They were encouraging one another. They were just excited together about the anticipation of what the Lord was going to do. But the wait was finally over. But it wasn't just the wait of the disciples, those 10 days. It was actually the entire wait of the Jewish people for hundreds of years that was coming to fulfillment. You see, in the day of Pentecost, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, ancient prophecies were fulfilled that stretched back hundreds of years that the Jewish people were waiting to be fulfilled Generation after generation was born and lived and died waiting for this one specific work of God. The day of Pentecost is when these ancient prophecies were fulfilled, but also one of the promises of Jesus. 
Regarding those ancient prophecies, Peter mentions one of them, the prophet Joel. A very tiny manuscript is left from the, the, the prophet Joel. It's kind of an obscure text. In fact, scholars to this day don't even know exactly when Joel lived. There's a lot of controversy about when his ministry was. We can kind of safely guess it was probably sometime around 500 years before Jesus even lived. But in that one small text, a rather obscure prophet, God gave this promise that his Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No longer will the Spirit just be for select individuals at specific times because that was the way it was done under the old covenant. God would, would, give, would give the Spirit to work upon an individual, to be with an individual for a certain period of time or for a certain activity. But the day was coming when the Holy Spirit of God would be available for all people, men and women, Jew, Gentile, young and old. The day of Pentecost was that fulfillment. There's another prophecy, and Peter doesn't bring him out exactly in the text, but another foundational prophecy was from the prophet Ezekiel, a much more substantial prophet, a much more verbose prophet. Ezekiel's a rather long book. And, and honestly, it's got some super weird stuff in there. The TV show Ancient Aliens loves the book of Ezekiel. It's just got some interesting stuff. But sifting through all of that is a core promise of what God's eventual plan was for people. It's one of the most important prophecies that's given in the Old Testament. And here it is in Ezekiel 36. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A new revelation of how God would bless and interact and relate to his human creation. On the night before his, his crucifixion, Jesus assured the disciples that it was both necessary and beneficial for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come to them. Now I am going to him who sent me, Jesus said. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, the one who is alongside of us, the one who is with us, God's very presence and power. That's the promise. The day of Pentecost is more accurately known as the Feast of Weeks in the Jewish, in the Jewish uh, verbiage and in the Jewish mindset. The Feast of Weeks is one of three major pilgrimage uh, festivals on the Jewish calendar. The faithful were to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to bring offerings from the first fruits of their harvest. They were to bring gifts and offerings to the Lord. 
It was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Hence, we know the distance that the disciples had to wait. Jesus, after the resurrection, appeared to them for 40 days. Then the next thing is 10 days later, Pentecost, 50 days. That's what the word Pentecost means, actually, is 50th. So the Holy Spirit comes. Now, there's a lot of confusion in this passage. Luke had mentioned earlier that in this room, the, 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 the disciples, the, the entourage of people who called upon the name of the Lord were about 120 people, men and women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even his brothers at this point. But the giving of the Holy Spirit in this miraculous way with these amazing signs and wonders and powers was only given to the 12 apostles. It wasn't the 120 who experienced this. It was the 12 who did. It was bestowed only upon them because of their special call and their special commission, their special ministry to witness to the resurrection of Jesus and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, a mission passed on to all of us, but the empowerment for that mission came directly from the miraculous outworking of the Holy Spirit. We know it's only the apostles because linguistically, when they were together all in one place, it refers back to apostles. Remember, Luke did not write with chapter and verse distinctions. There's no separation. So if you read the text naturally, it says Matthias was numbered with the 11 apostles. When they were all together in one place, they goes back to the apostles. Jesus did promise the baptism of the Holy Spirit only to the apostles for the purpose of expanding their witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Even the crowd comments that all those who were speaking in these other languages were Galileans. And we know not all of the followers of Jesus among the 120 were Galileans. Peter stood up with the 11 raised his voice and addressed the crowd, these people are not drunk. And why is this even important? Because this concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been so misunderstood, it's been mischaracterized, it's been misused. It's been used as a spiritual club to intimidate people and to hurt people. Now, we're going to be addressing that in various ways throughout, the, throughout the, the whole series here in the book of Acts. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be a blessing, is a gift from God. It is not a sign of spiritual superiority. It is not to be a spiritual divide. It is not to be a wedge. It is not to be a club to hurt people. It's also something that's not to be so easily misunderstood as only being this, this miraculous thing, the signs and wonders kind of thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the immersion of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit happens when we become Christians, when we confess our faith in Jesus, when in our hearts and our minds we, we turn our life from self-direction to Spirit-directed following Jesus when we confess that faith, when we are baptized, when we are immersed into Christ, when we are immersed, when we're baptized into Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, but also the body of Christ, the church. So we'll talk about that a lot more later. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is so often misunderstood and unfortunately misused. The spectacle is pretty amazing when the Spirit comes. 
There's a sound of a rushing wind. There's, there's, there's a visual of, of fire that seems to separate and, and almost looks like tongues up, uh, or, or little embers of flame that rest above each of the apostles. Pretty incredible pictures, word pictures, creates a lot of visual stuff in the mind. But Luke is actually very muted compared to some of the other mythical writings of the day that were very elaborate and embellished and would go on and on with descriptions. Luke is rather matter-of-fact, and he moves away from it very quickly. The emphasis is not on the external phenomena of the Spirit, but rather on the power of the Spirit to advance the gospel. And that is always the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is mission. That's the purpose. God pours out his Spirit on all flesh so that we will be saved, so that we will have a new heart to love God and learn from God and obey God, respond to God, enjoy God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And as all this is happening, a crowd begins to assemble. The apostles evidently move from the upper room where they were to perhaps a, a portion of the temple or at least a proximity to the temple. And there's thousands of people there. Peter's message in the temple is the very first gospel sermon you see, Jesus, when he began his ministry, preached the good news. The good news was that the kingdom of heaven is near. The even better news is that the kingdom of heaven is now here in Jesus. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That's kind of the essence of Peter's message. With the pilgrimage of Pentecost, Jerusalem was flooded with both Jews and converts to Judaism. The incredible scope of the miracle of preaching in tongues is languages that were spoken even, or spoken fluently even in the dialects of some of those certain regions. It's an incredible, incredible work of the Holy Spirit. People were able to hear the gospel clearly, convincingly, in their very own natural language. The key points of Peter's sermon are this. Jesus' miraculous works were the evidence of God working in him. This was acknowledged even by those who weren't yet his disciples. Remember, one of the Jewish leaders, Nicodemus, came to him at night and says, Teacher, we know that no one can do the works you do unless God was with him. Even some of the critics acknowledged that Jesus' miracles were authentic. When Peter says, God was, he attested the identity of Jesus by the miracles that he worked. Yeah, you did not listen to them. You did not believe in them. You dismissed them. But that was the work of God. Peter assures them that, yes, the crucifixion was an ordained part of God's plan. It was not an, ex it was not an accident. It was not an exception. It was not a sad ending. It was completely expected, anticipated, prepared for by Jesus it was a part of God's plan from the very beginning. 
Peter then moves into the, the great King David, who was still so highly revered by the Jewish people. But Peter begins to talk about some of the things David said that don't make a lot of sense until you see them interpreted through the lens of Jesus. Even David, in one of his songs, wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord and my Lord cannot be a self-reference to David, as was sometimes interpreted by the Jewish religious leaders. Cannot refer to another earthly king, as some rabbis also said because no earthly king would be given that level of spiritual authority and privilege. Peter says, David's my Lord is the Lord Jesus. It's incredible. Then it comes down to the resurrection. The resurrection is vindication. The resurrection is the end game. Everything rests that Jesus rose from the dead. It proves every claim. It validates every teaching. It confirms every miracle. It places Jesus above every other name and the ones who claim spiritual authority. It is Jesus alone. And Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father, indicating his rulership, authority, and honor, the very first gospel sermon is that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. That's the essence. That's the essence of the gospel and the message of everything. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah the long-awaited redeemer of Israel, but not just Israel, all of the nations fulfilling God's original promise from Genesis 12. When God called Abram, he says, I will bless you and make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. Through who, and through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And today we sit here as one small sampling of this new family, this new, this, this new kingdom that God has created when his spirit has been poured out on all flesh. We come from different ethnicities and different nationalities. We do so because that was God's plan to save all, not just the Jews or those who aligned with the old covenant. But Jesus is the Messiah, the redeemer that we need. But Jesus is also Lord. And with Jesus as Lord, it means no one else or nothing else has authority or ownership or rulership over our lives. It is solely Jesus. Yes, we have some earthly authorities we need to submit to. The Bible tells us that. So we submit, mostly. I know most, most of us hit the gas when we see a yellow light. I understand that. That's not very submissive to the authorities of the stoplights. <laughs> but we're to submit to those authorities. Those authorities. 
where we have authority in the church. We, we submit to that authority. We have, a, we have authorities in our, in our marriages. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as husband and wife. Children are to submit to their parents, to honor and obey their parents. Yes, there's, there's authorities for social structure and interaction, but the ultimate allegiance of the heart can only be to the Lord Jesus. Nothing else, no one else can take his place. And with Jesus as Lord, there's only three options. We either deny it, we just dismiss it completely, we ignore it, we go on and live life the way we want to live life. Or we can doubt, or we can devote. Those are the options. For those of you who may wish to deny, know why you're denying Jesus. Study it. Become sure. Make sure you're right that Jesus is not Lord. Don't just wish it to be so because you don't want to be hassled by Jesus' claims over your life. For those who doubt, be comforted. Be encouraged. Struggle is okay. Doubt is not disbelief. Doubt is that, is that place where sometimes we're kind of in between. Doubt itself is not sin. But if you're doubting, it's okay. It's part of the struggle. It's part of the working out of our salvation. Just make sure you don't wallow there. Don't set up camp. Don't let that become the paradigm for everything in life. Don't feed the doubt, feed the faith. So read the scriptures, seek counsel, listen to podcasts, get books, consult Indulge, feed the faith so that your doubt can be overcome. And then for those who are devoted to Jesus, keep fighting the good fight. Stay strong in the faith. Continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to serve, continue to, to do what God has called you to do in this world as we live out his Lordship over us. And lastly, I wanted to hit this. Peter's words, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. Obviously, we weren't there. We're not the crowd that called for the crucifixion. We're not the, the crowd that turned against Jesus we're not that crowd from history that immediately had blood upon their hands. But here's the reality of, of Christian truth. Jesus still died because of us. We are the reason Jesus was crucified. Because we have sin. 
in the crucifixion takes away the penalty of our sin. Jesus died for my sin to be forgiven. That is the essence of faith. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross for our sin, it's that he died on a cross for my sin. And then he rose from the dead, not just for the gift of eternal life, but for me to have eternal life and new life. And that's not, a, that's not an individualistic, it's not, a, it's not a, any kind of way of an arrogance kind of thing. It is an acknowledgement that it is my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It is his love for me that led him to the cross. It's not narcissistic. It's acknowledging and embracing that truth. And when we fully understand that, that we have struggle, that we have sin, that we need help, then we can release it to God and not only be forgiven, but then the Holy Spirit can work afresh within us. Remember the promise to Ezekiel. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit within you so that you can obey my laws and respond to his love. See, Jesus truly is the gospel, the good news. And it's the Holy Spirit that works within us to bring the good news of Jesus being king to our lives every day. But it's not just for Sunday. It is for every day. If you'd indulge me in something just for a moment, I received some really devastating news last night, and I can't share the details uh, just yet. And I hope this is the Holy Spirit. I hope it's not just my grief speaking. But Jesus is real. Forgiveness is real. All of our sin, all of our struggles, it's not unforgivable. It's not irreparable. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to condemn them. And so for all of us, but especially guys, men, cling to Jesus. Do not give up hope. Do not succumb. Do not give in to despair, to disillusionment. Cling to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. And if you, if you stumble, if you fail, if you struggle... Get up, return to Jesus. Because it's in what we do right in this moment that shows God's love for each of us, that shows that none of us are too far away. None of us have done too much bad or wrong. Everything is forgivable. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And when we celebrate communion together in this act, if, if you take this bread, you are acknowledging that Jesus died for your sin. So let that sin be dead in you. Jesus' precious blood was poured out so you could be cleansed. And even if you cannot forgive yourself, let Jesus' forgiveness be enough for right now.